Hi, this is John Doran. You're listening to a special edition of The Quiet Sour with my Jet, with my James. With my my James. We're so close already, aren't we? Yeah. With my guest, James Endicott. Hiya. James, how's it going? It's very good, thank you, John. My John. Uh, Well, my James, so... (laughs) (laughs) But what does it say on... Give me the short version of your CV. How do you... If ever you were... Accosted by a member of the local constabulary, and they yeah. say, "What is it that you do? What is it that you do?" I just, you know, what I do? I run around being James Endicott, not or somebody I think, else too. I think that's what I, I've realised. I've spent my, well, at least the last thirty years learning to be James Endicott and running around as being James Endicott, and I've realised that's the only way forward. I can't be anybody else. I've tried. I've tried. You know, when I always, I've, I've got three kids, right? Three teenage kids, and I always say to them that. You've got um, you've got lots of heads in front of you, and for every and I, it's it's that way of teaching people how to uh, react in different situations, how to be in different situations. So you can be with a guy on the street, or you can be with, with Lord and Lady Muck, or you can be with the guy from the chip shop, or whatever. But it's all about a series of hats, and it's learning when to put the right hat on at the right time. And all those hats are just different aspects of your own personality, or just an extension of it. So I've I've just been working out that. I'm trying to use less and less hats as I get older. So right. eventually when I get to a certain age, I'll just be that one hat. Now, what that hat's going to be, I don't know. You'll find out who the real you is. Possibly. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I want to know, John. Are you like Charlene, though? Have you been to paradise, but never to yourself? I've been to the other side. All right. But I never came back. <laughs> a um, long time ago, John. It what, was a long time ago. Which hat are you most comfortable wearing? Um, I guess the hat I'm, I'm, most, I'm most comfortable when I'm showing off. I think when I'm with a group of people and, I'm, and we're talking, like, like moments like this is when I'm more comfortable. Or oh, if there's more people here, then I'm a lot better when I've got an audience. Because I'm, I'm good on my own. I like spending time. I love travelling on my own, John. I really love travelling on my own. I used to do a lot of travelling years ago when I was working with bands back in the 90s. I used to travel all around the world and I used to make sure I did it on my own. And it was brilliant. I love doing that, but... I really love being with a group of people in sort of a relaxed situation and maybe a couple of drinks or whatever and just and just generally trying to out outdo everybody else in the room. But not in a horrible way. I think I do. Do you know I used to that was the my, my big thing that I really, really enjoyed about drinking was um going out with a big group of people during the day yeah. to a quietish pub, sitting around a table and holding court yeah and I've got to say like you know I think people for me like people often make this mistake when I'm like I've got no interest in going to the pub in the evening anymore and they think it's because of a drink thing it's not it's because you can't really have the crack in a London pub in the evening it's also or, too noisy as well John. exactly that's, too noisy. that is what I'm talking about it's like mm. I can't you know there's no way you can tell people your stupid story about the blue tones if yeah. it's a, a split in volume. Well, most stories about the blue tones are pretty stupid. Well, so you're all right. You haven't anytime. heard my blue tone story. Are, anytime but my thing is, you go to the pub in the evening and it's like you haven't got long until the pub shuts. It's, you're a lot better to go at lunchtime and then yeah. leave and then leave early when everybody's coming in from work. Well, I think, that's, I think that's the best thing to do. Yeah, I used to think that way as well, but let's not dwell on that. <laughs> let's not dwell on that. Anyway, what time's the pub up? <laughs> so, as always, on yeah. uh, the Quietest Hour special, the guest chooses the music, and I think we should find straight into that because favourite of yours, I'm guessing, and also a favourite of mine. This is Japan and Life in Tokyo.
So you're my you're my second guest, my James, who's chosen <laughs> Japan. And I believe oh. uh, the last one was our guest David Keenan, the author. The now author. he he chose uh, a bunch of the most obscure kind of like international punk and Japanese noise rock going and. Yeah. Quiet Life, 12 Inch by Japan. There you go. Do you know why it was called Quiet Life, that tune? No, I don't. This is a true story. Japan were really big in Japan, yeah. as you know, in the, in the late 70s. They, were, they all met at a school in Catford, which is where, I'm, which is where I've been living for 30 years. Um, and they all met at school there, David Sylvian and his brother and Mick Khan and the rest of them. And this in the late 70s, and they were very influenced by sort of hair, hair metal-y type bands, but also yeah. that bit of sort of Roxy in there and that sort of stuff and they their first couple of albums Obscure Alternatives and Adolescent Sex got really really big in Japan they were really 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 successful they were playing in front of like 10,000 people but they come home to London and they play like the Hope and Anchor in front of like 80 people and they just said this is the quiet life right 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 I don't know if it's true but it's a good story isn't it yeah it is yeah but also the other thing about Japan is, is that I think they're a criminally underrated band criminally underrated because they they're always seen as like sort of Bowie copyists or Roxy copyists and David Sylvian was always seen as the most beautiful man in Britain until Green Gartside came along and I think he he took the mantle with Scritti Politi but um, whenever I DJ funny enough you mentioned David Keenan I was uh, DJing at Port Elliot Festival a couple of weeks ago with Jeff Barrett from Heavenly Records and um, I played uh, Quiet Life I think it was either Quiet Life or Life in Tokyo by Japan and I looked down to the dance floor and there's this bearded figure, like arms flailing everywhere, doing all the really bad new romantic moves. And it was David Keenan. I refuse. <laughs> it really was. It was unbelievable. I refuse to believe that David Keenan's a bad dancer. <laughs> he, was, he was a bad new romantic dancer. Oh, right. There's okay. a, diff- yeah, there's a yeah, subtle yeah. difference. He was John. probably doing it on purpose. Oh, maybe he was. I maybe. don't know. Maybe he was. Well, that's cool, though, isn't it? I mean,. Um that's my I think that was my introduction to post-punk was like the post-punk and the new wavers and the goths who were fans of disco mm. that was my way into yeah. it you know well they were they sort of they were the they were almost indie dance before indie dance weren't they yeah yeah I yeah. mean they were you know I mean there, there wasn't indie music then as you know but it, they were sort of in that sort of cool world but they embraced disco which as a 17 16th century old kid in Halifax, West Yorkshire, you hated disco. Of course, you did. Everybody hated disco. It was the, it was the, it was the devil. It was, it was bands like Japan working with George Moroder that sort of made you realise actually there's some pretty good songs. And Japan were the one group I think you were allowed to like that were quite discoy. I remember there was a kid at school. I went to this old boys grammar school in Halifax called Heath Grammar School. And the hardest kid in the school, like the really hard boy called Bosley, he was really tough. He used to beat everyone up. And really horrible he was. And, um, but he was really into Japan. And when um, Dave Sylvian had that haircut, when it was like really light at the back and a bit dark yeah, yeah. at the front, it was just a bit weird, wasn't it? He had... Bozzy comes to school on a Monday, like the cock of the school, with his bloody, like, <laughs> his mad David Sylvian haircut. But nobody took the mickey out of him because it had yeah. just beaten you up. Brilliant. I loved that. I think, like, you know... I. I don't. I'm not going to go as far as saying I miss that kind of thing because I don't miss anything to do with kind of violence. No. But the the whole scene of music tribalism and who was into what pre Britpop was mm. really weird from yeah. today's POV. So like, there's this amazing chapter um, in Steve Ignorant's autobiography, which right. I would recommend to anyone. It's absolutely fantastic I'd like to read that. bit of uh, writing. 
And the most interesting stuff is his like kind of pre-punk. And I, I didn't realise just how much of a young ruffian he was. He right. was a football hooligan. Oh, I didn't know that. And like he recounts going to a match and getting absolutely beaten up by two Aladdin Sane clones. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's like it, it sounds weird now. But at the time, you can sort of you yeah. can sort of see that. You know, you'd, you'd have like violence kicking off at the weirdest gigs, wouldn't you? Like say, really like, weird. Like some of the roughest gigs I've ever been to in Liverpool would. Um, not so much loop, although I remember having to leg it at one point during a Liverpool Royal Court show. Wow. But Sorry the, about that. The primitives. The primitives? Yeah, absolutely. Nearly kicked off totally. Really? You know. And it's like, yeah. And also the scene for kind of bands who are more of a kind of a psychobilly or rockabilly band. There was all those know. psychobilly bands that was all a bit mad. Yeah. They used to chuck um, all those sort of bands like the... Oh, they, they used to have like uh, bags of white oh, King, flour. King Kurt. King Kurt flour. And yeah, and awful. Flour and awful, yeah. But you see, from King Kurt's point of view, it was more of a performance thing. But I believe King Kurt got dragged out of the stage door in Liverpool and beaten mm. to a pulp one night. Yeah, but when you're like 18, 19, that isn't performance art, is it? That's no. Just, that's just people chucking flour at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? You're not really having it. I remember going to... I, the second gig... The first gig I ever went to when I was like 13 was... First band was Robert Rental and the Normal, and then it was Essential Logic, and then it was SLF, Stiff Little Fingers, but this, which is a great, really defining moment, moment in my life. But the second gig I went to, I went on my own, was to see the Boomtown Rats. This would have been right. about 1978. And um, I remember I was like really excited, and there was a queue to get in. There's this old theatre in Halifax called uh, the Victoria Theatre, and I'm queuing up with my ticket in my hand. I was a little weedy, little sort of 13 year old kid. And there's these two skinheads were just walking up and down the the queue, and they come up to you goes, "Oh, lad, you got a ticket?" And I was really proud. I went, "Yeah, I have. I've got a ticket." And there it was in my sweaty palm. I've got a ticket, and one of them just took it out of me, and the other one headbutted me. Oh, you, haven't, you haven't got one now, have you? And just beat the hell out of me on the floor. I mean, kicked the hell out of me. Nobody did anything, and I remember getting on the bus and going home, and obviously in tears. And I've hated the Boomtown Rats ever since. Quite right. So Never. I mean, I shouldn't have liked them anyway, to be honest. But yeah. Well, but that was a, how, that was how a bad. Ex- were you? Thirteen, man. That's rubbish. That was, isn't it's it? really bad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really bad. But that's the, that's the worst sort of violence I've seen. I wasn't even at the gig. It was outside. It was like yeah. it was like quarter past seven on a Tuesday night. ever seen in an actual gig and not performative ritualised violence like people in a mosh pit but yeah. actual just like fights breaking out was the watching the I believe it was one of the first ever UK shows of Sugar Cubes right okay and it, I think like like Birthday had been a big 
big like hit, hit yeah. on John Peel. So they got bumped up from this tiny venue to, I think it was like the International right. in Manchester. And there were some punks down the front and one of them spat and it hit Ina on oh, the wow. sleeve. And he stopped Ooh. the song and he started ripping his clothes off doing this speech about Mancunians. I thought you were supposed to be civilised people. No You way. Mancunians. You weren't civilised people. Ooh. There was like a little gap before it all just totally just went. off. Yeah, we had to take two of our mates to the hospital that night with oh concussion. Yeah, and you just think, the sugar cubes, what was going on, you know? Well, not, not talking about violence, but on a similar theme, what's the scariest gig you've ever been to where the, the actual band itself scares you? Have you got, I mean, I, yeah, I, I know uh, what I, I, I mean, like, I can Like, answer. literally just going, I just, this is beyond anything. This, that, those four or five members or whatever are scaring me right now. All right, I'm going to tell you the actual one, but there's something else involved here. So, like, I went to see Sun, uh, okay. the drone metal band, once at Coco. And I think it was at my kind of height of seeing them as a psychedelic band. And I'd taken a lot of drugs before mm. I went. And I'd really kind of taken too much yeah. and I was already on the verge of having quite an intensely dark time anyway on the way there and uh, my mate Manish who I used to live with oh, at the time I got into the venue and he was like he'd just been doing like because he's like uh, used to be a music writer as well yeah, yeah, and he was like there's a tiller <laughs> as in from mayhem <laughs> like, like, he goes he goes <laughs> Well, you know, come and say hello to him. And just in my head, I was like, oh no, it's the guy from Mayhem. And I was that scared. I went and locked myself in the toilets until oh the gig God. began. And then I got it into my head that, you know, when you go down the stairs in Coco, yeah. just to get to the bit, I was kind of going down into some underground stone chamber right, to watch okay. him. All I could see in the audience all around me were Jowers. You know, those little clothes <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what was going on. But, Mate, yeah. So that really wasn't the gig. It was more about what you'd ingested yeah. really than the gig itself, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Absolutely. The actual band. I remember seeing the birthday party in about 1982, just before they split up. Leeds Polytechnic, I think. It was around the time of um, release. Maybe just after release your bats. Around those two EPs they did, the Mutant EP, I think it was. I remember going to see them. And it was just, before, it was just a, at the, the onset of what is now known as goth. I think at the time it wasn't really known as goth, but West Yorkshire was one of the sort of main areas where it helped Leeds, especially with the Sisters of Mercy and stuff like that. I went to go and see the birthday party and Nick Cave was just like this thin, this thin skeleton with this mop of hair and just like screaming into the microphone. It was the height of their just intense, sort of pummeling music. Roland S. Howard, the guitar player, just like, it was like, Wilco Johnson on speed. Imagine that. Do you know what I mean? Just running around the stage, just like crazy man. Like his 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 guitar was like a was like a machine gun. Then he had this bass player, Tracy Pugh, who died a few years later. Tall guy with this big cowboy hat, just stood like 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 a cowboy. Just played amazingly. And then he had Mick Harvey on the drums. And and at the front were these sort of what what were goths, these sort of young kids in like black black hair and makeup and white stuff on their faces, and I was you know seventeen whatever I was sixteen year old kid, and just like I just I just I'd never seen anything like it, and it was just it was scared I was actually quite I knew the songs but I was too scared I was, I remember standing at the side I was with my brother who was even younger than me he was like fifteen, it was an incredible experience to see something that powerful on stage. Um, but yeah, that was that actually scared me. And I remember telling Nick Cave, I met Nick Cave many times later uh, over the years, and, and I told him that story, and he just smiled, which I thought was quite nice. 
I think if I'm going to be truthful, it would have been like I used to go to a nightclub in uh, Liverpool called Planet X, and they used to put on a lot of uh, kind of grindcore gigs, which I guess was like right. my punk rock. Your, your well, punk, yeah. Not really my punk rock, but the punk rock that was going on when the, I was 16 and right, 17. Yeah. And I, I guess for me, uh, seeing uh, bands like uh, Extreme Noise Terror and Lawnmower Death, because right. <laughs> I did because all I'd heard before then was Metallica that would be the heaviest thing I'd ever heard yeah. in my life and the jump up from Ride the Lightning to Extreme Noise Terror yeah. it's a bit of a quantum well it was, all, it was that label um, era correct yeah, yeah, there was yeah, all that sure, era yeah. stuff I remember seeing a lot of those bands at the time I wasn't really into it all I was maybe a little bit older and I could sort of I was into sort of more sort of Sonic Youthy type stuff at the time maybe you know that but yes um I'm glad there isn't violence at gigs anymore no I am <laughs> but, well. I, I, but I but I I do miss. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I haven't seen a band for ages that I've been like, "Oh my god, what the hell's going on there?" Like a bit scared, not in a horrible way, but like feel a bit uncomfortable. Maybe it's an age thing. I don't know. Well, I tell you, we can go back to this after you know, like probably the uh, king of um, artists who created that kind of tribal feeling, and that's David Bowie. And the track you've chosen for us today is "Kingdom Come." David Bowie there in Kingdom Come. I think what would be unusual is if we had a guest on the quiet, it's either an interview guest or somebody on the podcast like this who didn't choose David Bowie. I mean, David Bowie touched nearly everyone, didn't he? He did, and I, I wanted to choose I wanted to choose a track that he didn't write as well, because he didn't write that song. That song was written by Tom Verlaine. And it's off my favourite Bowie album, Scary Monsters, which I guess, it wasn't the first Bowie album I bought. I remember buying Heroes when it came out on cassette. And I bought Lodger when it came out. Um, but Space, uh, sorry, Scary Monsters, I think was the one, 1980, so I'd have been like, it was the one that, the first one that I bought when I was absolutely immersed in Bowie world, you know. I, I, you know, I have this, I've got this theory that never trust, never trust a man who didn't think he was Bowie for six months of his life. Yeah. Man. You know what I mean? I, I, knew, I was right in that one. I was in that one. I was the one, I was a kid that took photographs of the album sleeves to put on my wall. I mean, why you do that? But but that track, Kingdom Come, has got this line. It's got this line in there, and he goes, "The the uh, walls are mile high." But the way he sings it in this falsetto, and it's always been my favourite bit in any Bowie song ever. It's just this incredible bit. And I remember being in Manchester many years ago, and um, I think there's um, a friend of mine, Richard, who's um, 
um, watching or listening right now to this, Richard Hector Jones, and uh, I think he was in the pub at the time, and he'll um, he'll vouch for this story. And it's quite a hard Manchester pub. And it was which really, one was it? I can't remember. Oh. Were, I can't remember. I'm sure he'll, he'll, he'll he might be able to remember. And um, I remember we had this big Bowie conversation, and I was going this track, this Kingdom Come song, you know, the, the walls are mine, did all this, and I remember getting up on a table, you know, being all like Bowie, and just all these just people just around going, what the, what the fuck is that? What the hell is going on? And me not realising that there's a quite a volatile situation yeah, yeah, happening. Yeah. Um, and Richard's reminded me of it many times over the years. But anyway, it's, it, it, it's, it's off my favourite Bowie album. It's not my favourite song on the album, but I just thought I'd choose it because it was a little bit off kilter. All right, so do you know how much Greater Manchester has uh, changed in this regard <laughs> then? So I went up to uh, Strangeways recently to interview Julie, Julie Campbell, Lone Lady, mm-hmm. about two years ago, and she had, um, like, in that kind of totally destroyed, run-down kind of ex-mill district near the prison, she had... Um, a studio, like a lock-up studio where she was living and recording. It was freezing cold and it was just used by, outside the street, it was just used by drug dealers during the day. Mm. And there was this really amazing seven o'clock crossover point when they disappeared and the prostitutes turned up or yeah. whatever. And after a while, it got too cold to stay in her studio anymore. So she was like, let's just go to a pub or whatever. And I yeah. was like, oh, right, oh. Thinking like it's a good two decades since I've been out drinking in Salford, and I'm yeah. a bit still a bit like right, okay, well, go on, lead on. And we got into this pub, and like straight away, I was trying, I was just at the bar trying to deal in my head with the idea of like asking for a cup of green tea in a pub in Salford, <laughs> right? And in the end, I just thought, well, you know, it's two in the afternoon, just do it and see what happens. Yeah. So I was like could I have a cup of green tea? And the woman behind the bar said, yeah, what sort? And I was like, what? <laughs> anyway, so this voice behind me goes, hey, mate, where'd you get your handbag? And I was like, all right, now this I recognise, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> now I know where I am. So I had this quietest tote over my arm and we did him for the fifth birthday of... Um, of the quietest five for years quote, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got one at home somewhere so the quote says I think I saw you in an ice cream parlour uh, drinking milkshakes cold and long and the, and the, I turned around and I was like look mate I'm just here for a cup of green tea I don't want <laughs> and he goes no mate really I'm Bowie's biggest fan where'd you get it I want to buy one oh, like that brilliant. and I was like well there you go you know so we ended up sitting down with this fella having a cup of green tea talking about our favourite David Bowie live albums brilliant I was like, well, Brilliant. Salford is a bit different than how I remember yeah, it. Yeah. You know, I, there's that, there's that, there's a certain beat. I used to have a friend of mine, Kieran. Well, I've still got a friend called Kieran, and me and his and our mate Daryl, who runs Piccadilly Records in Manchester. This is oh, like 25 years ago. We used to go up there for the weekend to Manchester just to go out drinking for the day, and we'd set off at like 11 o'clock, half 10, 11, and we'd go until eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, and then we'd collapse. We used to go to these Holtz pub. Remember that beer Holtz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we said, it's oh, run as a charity, isn't it? You know, I don't know much about Holtz, but I just know it was it was the cheapest one. It was one. Of the, it was just everybody was. I think I don't know what they put in it, but everybody's like psychotic. I mean, yeah. properly mental. You know those pubs where you go in and you see some guy who's been there for like maybe three hours with a half a pint, and his eyes are like spinning around. The rumor, yeah, the rumor was that there was something bordering on 
kind of tranquilizers or something. It had that, well, you know. <laughs> but I know Holtz is actually a really ethical company. They give I'm, they give I'm, a, they give a penny in every pound to charity. Well, good that's on them. How they do the. But I, I remember Holtz. I haven't drunk Holtz for about twenty years. But maybe we should maybe we should go up, John, have a pint of Holtz together. <laughs> See what happens. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that would be funny, wouldn't it? Um, right. Now, uh, Richard on Facebook says, yeah. this is all true. It was a biker pub called The Angel. I, he nearly got killed. There you oh, go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not lying. Yeah, Thank you, yeah, Richard, yeah. for verifying that story. Cool, a bike. Man. I didn't realise it was a biker pub. God, I'm really scared now. All wow. right. So That's an even better story now. I'm going to really embellish this story. <laughs> so... The next song we're going to play, I'm going to I'm going to try and maintain an air of stoicism here, but I've got to say this really, really pulls at my heartstrings. Uh, this reminds me of my uh, first ever girlfriend, uh, Janet Bates from Rainford, kicking me into touch, and like me, and it was on the the day of my RE O level, and then just sagging the exam. And going straight round to my mate Martin's house in Rainhill, and he he was playing a non-stop erotic cabaret, and this song was the point at which I burst into Sailor, tears. Like, well, you're going to you know. play "Sailor with Goodbye," which I believe is well to me, it's the greatest single ever made. It's it's my favourite all-time single, and it it, it involved a girl, <laughs> of course, oh, of course, at it some did. party because I think I was leaving and I went somewhere, and it was like, but the words, I just. I uh, met Mark Harmon a couple of years ago. Actually, I've met him a few times, but a couple of years ago, it was at, um, one of those horrible festivals in Hyde Park, you know. Yeah, yeah. Some, I think the Strokes were playing or something, I can't remember. And he was there, and I just ran up to him and just like started kissing him and holding him. I've never seen a man look quite as terrified as he did. Because I was like, <laughs> I think my hair was quite long at the time. I was like, oh, Mark. He was just like, oh. And there's this picture that my, uh, Olive, my daughter took and she didn't know who Mark Owen was at the time yeah. and now she's a big soft cell fan she said I just remember this guy and his, his face was a bit plasticky he had so loads of makeup on he looked beautiful and I was just like just this hairy sweaty monster all, oh, Mark I love you I love you Mark I love you he's fine very nice you're very nice Jerry. Very nice, very nice. but yeah I, I mean soft cell again it's that maybe it's that northern thing that Leeds connection but they were a big part of my life when I was younger but, that, but this song particularly I mean, I do like the first album. I do like other stuff. I like a lot of Mark Solo stuff and the Mambas stuff I really like. But this one song just always... And the 12-inch version, it just makes me... Reduces me. Don't play it. <laughs> there you go. Silo, wave goodbye.
So as you may have spotted, that was the 12-inch version of Say Hello, Wave Goodbye by the Peerless Soft Cell. Now, the first thing I thought, because I hadn't listened to that 12-inch version for a, for a very long time, no. Soft Cell did amazing 12-inch remixes, yeah. like some of the best. And yeah. speaking as a, a hobbyist DJ who still plays out quite mm-hmm. a lot, I would never leave the house without the 12 inch of memorabilia, yeah. which slays dance floors to this day, mm. I think. I know. think the one that always does as well is when you play um, Soft Cell's version of Tainted Love and the 12 inch goes to Where Did Our Love Go? Yeah. I mean, that always gets me because it gets so slow. And it's, it gets almost, it's, it's almost like everyone's on ketamine in the middle of the dance floor. And all of a sudden it gets Where Did Our Love Go? But the 12 inch, you say remix, the. The great thing about a lot of those 12 inches back then is they, they weren't even remixes. It was basically the song with a bit at the end or a bit at the beginning. And I think, and I think that bit, um, that soft cell tune, the say hello, wave goodbye, it's, just, it's basically an instrumental of the song it's, and then the song. But it's, it's, just, it's the extended version it's, rather it's than extended, the remix. It's extended, but even yeah, so, yeah. I know what you're saying. But yeah, amazing, amazing. There's a great one, which I don't uh, like, but do you know what? I'm now, due to my noggin injury, going to forget exactly which one it is. I think it might be Torch, but there's one with uh, Mark and a female voice doing an extended spoken word narrative right in the middle. Oh, I don't know. I'm like the, it's like they're doing a meta commentary on the lyrics of the songs. Absolutely wow. amazing. Wow, that's amazing. Maybe somebody who's watching this on Facebook Live can tell us, so yeah. we can tell you what it is. So, I think we should play another tune. Okay. Let's go for... Right, so I'm not sure about what this is. Maybe tell us a little bit about what this is first. Uh, just another Teenage Rebel by The Outcasts. The Outcasts, yeah. The Outcasts were a band from Northern Ireland. I was, I was really into um, SLF as a kid, Stiff Little Fingers, who were from Northern Ireland and it was a, a great label called Good Vibrations from Northern Ireland there's a film about it a few years ago and just it's just one of those I think there's always a great sort of punk or not even punk but there's a tune that epitomises you like youth and excitement and rebellion and it's raw and it's just about being a teenage rebel and it's just the outcast it's just one of those singles that I bought when I was really young and I keep going back to and when you asked me to choose nine songs that song just came into my head and I just thought you know what just another teenage rebel and Maybe a lot of people haven't heard it before, so I think it it, it deserves a quietest audience. If you All right, I mean. the outcast, just another teenage rebel. Rebel, 
That was just another Teenage Rebel by the Outcasts. I'm John Doran talking to James Endicott. Hi. Now, um, so when we first had a chat together, we were mm-hmm. at a festival, weren't we? And I believe we're both going to the same festival In this Totnes, year. In Totnes, yeah. The Sea Change Festival. Absolutely wonderful uh, event, isn't it? It's a great event, a great record shop in Totnes down in Devon called Drift Records, run by a lovely guy called Rupert. And I think he just decided to have a little festival in the town. It's not like your average festival where it's a camping thing, you're all enclosed in like a, a space. It's, as you know, it's, you know, for the listeners, it's like there's a gig in the local church and the local community centre and little bits in here. And you've got a, a thing down there, as you, you and Luke, for the, for the quietest have their own stage. And, and I, what I like about it, it's a very, it's very eclectic sort of um, choice of music that goes on down there. It's got that sort of Devon, that Devonian sort of a bit hippy drippy sort of acoustic vibe about it. There's also other things as well. And they have big bands there. Last year, British Sea Power played, and this year I think Temples are playing. Um, yeah, and um, there's a great. There's, uh, this year there's a great singer songwriter from the states playing called Riley Walker, who I really like. And there's also a great guy called a uh, guy from Yorkshire, great singer songwriter called Michael Chapman. Who's playing down there? It's just a, it's just a great event. It's just really nice being in in a town, and you just you go to the pub, or if you want something to eat, you can go to Tesco's. Do you know what I mean you don't have to pay eight pound for a bit of for some mung beans and rice? Do you know what I mean? You can actually, and it's just good vibe and just people hanging around, and you get the local town folk there, and it's it's a nice place, Totnes. It's got that sort of. It's like people call it lazily call it the Hebden Bridge of the South, yeah, and which is I think is pathetic, but whatever. I can see what they mean. Um, how many festivals do you do a year? Quite a few, actually, John. Maybe six or seven. All right. Yeah, six in the UK. Yeah, I mean, I only I don't don't really do European festivals. Any, I used to do years ago when I used to work with bands a lot more and travel with them. But I do always do Glastonbury. I usually do Green Man this year. I'm not. I did a Secret Garden part this year. I was on some panel that one and. Um, this one, and then I oh got end of the road, maybe. Yeah, there's always usually about six or seven. I, I just love it. It's just like going on holiday with your mates. That's how I view it. It's like going on holiday with your friends, and there's some bands there. I don't really go and see many bands at a lot of these festivals. I just hang out with mates. And then you, and I like going to see things that I wouldn't normally see as well. I don't just go and see the things that I know about. I go and I might go and see something that maybe that you guys are doing down in. Totnes, I might go and check out some of the, the weird and wonderful quietest music going on or whoever it is but yeah it's, I just like the whole vibe and it's, I guess with me married with three kids and my kids all grown up going to festivals it's a real it's a thing that we all love do you know what I mean it is uh, something isn't it I mean like the, for certain sorts of music you know there's a big portion of the audience is growing up yeah and growing older uh, not always gracefully but you know they are growing up with it yeah. And like I've got to say that I really appreciate a festival that is genuinely family friendly. And for me, yeah, this year so far, you know, super normal out mm. in Oxfordshire has been the one. But I know uh, Sea Change is extremely good for kids yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, 
What about the other side of the coin, though? When you were touring back in the day, mm. either touring with bands or in a band, yeah. what were some of the most hectic or ill-sorted-out festivals you've been to? It was always ones in this country. I used to go yeah. a lot of you when I was used to manage a band called uh, Tindersticks in oh, right. the nineties. Okay, yeah. I managed them for about five years, and they were they went to a lot of European festivals like Puckle Pop and Lowlands and all these yeah. other ones that probably aren't even there now, and I can't remember. But always very, very. I mean, run like military operations, fantastic back backstage facilities and all that. All the festivals in this country, maybe not so much now, but back in the day, were just very shoddily run. Uh, and you know you get there and this this is not working the stage isn't working or there's you, you've you haven't got enough bread rolls or the you know, all the towels are too small or all these things you know but it's never been really crazy I mean the it's I think the one the festival that I love the most is Glastonbury which is and it's a very obvious thing to say but it's also a festival which is so different to any other festival it's got such a heritage and I've been going there first time I went there was in 1985 so you know I was like 20 years old and. It's a, an amazing festival that has its problems and has had problems, but I think it's come out from the other side. It's a very different festival to what it was. People moan about it being too corporate or too Guardian-friendly or whatever they call it. I don't know. It, I think that's all rubbish. I think it's still got, it still re- retains a real magical quality about it. You go through the gates and you, you, it's like going into Narnia or something. I, that's how I view it. I mean... I've never been to Glastonbury and for me it's big it's really big yeah, it's a really mean, big job f- for me it's like I've missed my window of opportunity to go now really I don't, I, no, I don't I, see I totally disagree I don't think you have I think well, for, for me I don't really like being in huge crowds of people oh, well, well, you, you, I wouldn't go to Glastonbury then now my thing though is, is looking at it from an, uh, from an outside perspective I wonder how corporate can a festival actually be when it's got its own little district of gay nightclubs? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I know. I'm, I, it doesn't I'm, sound I'm like Coachella to me. It's not. You know? I mean, my I, I, <laughs> the the moment that really sums, sums up Glastonbury for me it was about five or six years ago, and I got taken down to this area called Block Nine, which is you know the big sort of gay nightclubby area and like the real the real hardcore area, the real dancey like. It's what I, I know a lot of people go clubbing still, and they call it like it's it's they call it the best club in the world down there, and they say it's better than any club anywhere in any city in any town. I remember being there one time, and it was about four thirty-five a.m. in the morning, and um, I was dancing away, you know, had a few drinks, blah, blah, dancing a little bit high, and this guy like started to dance in front of me, quite a short guy with a really really big belly, really big belly, really hairy as well, no hair handlebar moustache and little the tiniest black leather studded studded shorts on it's just like like mincy in front of it like this and it's just like dancing I was dancing with him and all of a sudden he just pulled out and out I don't know it's been hanging out about this big long black dildo and just started slapping me around the face <laughs> of it just slapping me just like that no, there was nothing malicious yeah, nothing yeah, weird yeah. just slapping around the face and I just I just dropped to the knee, my knees and put my hands up I went Glastonbury I love you and to me that was what it's all about you yeah, know yeah. and I think you know it's it's that it's the freedom and it's the nobody gives a monkeys but yeah everybody's it's also a really safe environment I believe I think with that image <laughs> fre- yeah. with that image fresh in my mind we Good. should go straight to the very appropriate Our Lady of Solitude yeah. by Leonard Cohen <laughs> Summer long, she touched me. She gathered in my 
from many a thorn, from many a thicket. Her fingers, like a weaver's, quick and cool. And the light came from her body. Along, she touched me, and I knew her. I knew her face to face. All summer long, she touched me. Leonard Cohen there. I was about to say Leonard Cohen there and hating the music business more and more. But what I actually did was uh, switch over my sheet of notes. Hating the music business more and more, I believe, it must be a point of conversation which we need oh. to address. <laughs> oh, yeah, you did ask me some pointers to talk about and I just said hating the music business more and more. Well, yeah, because it's full of sharks and idiots, isn't it? It's well, like, well, so like the, the received wisdom is that... Um, I'm going to say that again. So the received wisdom is that as the pool shrinks and shrinks, maybe more of the kind of money-motivated people have gone elsewhere. But mm, I don't know. You know what? When I say I hate the music business more and more, it's just it's when you write in it and you've got a record label and you're trying to sell your artist you know sell the records or the music or get people to stream it I mean, you know, and we you, you spend your life trying to get people to stream something and not even buy it these days the whole, i mean it's all this is a conversation for another time i guess john but it's like the whole thing's just shifted and it's shifting it's the 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 plates are shifting on a on a weekly monthly yearly basis you know and it's just i guess i just find it i find it more and more difficult to see people that are in positions of power in this business who don't like music. And it's what it is, it's more, it's, it's people call it the music business and it, the, the music bit of it is just the, 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 the letters are getting smaller and smaller and the business letters are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Saying that, I also, on the flip side of it, I do think there's more, a lot more interest in music around now than there has been for a long, long Certainly, time. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot more, there's a lot more, uh, it's a lot more varied. It's a lot easier to find things that nobody else has ever heard of. I think the obviously the internet helps that massively. But I just think, and you mentioned it earlier on about the tribal thing. I think the the tribal thing does exist still, but there's so many of them that it just all merged into one. And I think there's so much exciting music out there, and so much just getting reissued as well. There's a lot of great reissues around, which is which makes it hard for somebody like me who's trying to promote new artists. When you've got a new album by, say, Nadine Shark coming out, which is a great record, but yet there's these great compilations of like unknown, like singer songwriters from the seventies, or this great glam thing that's been never been heard of for forty years, or all this stuff. Then it's hard to know where your money's going to go. You know what I mean? It's like all right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna butt in here as a, as a tastemaker and right. say 
you know, ignore that uh, erroneous label uh, that says on the vinyl, uh, Collector's Holy Grail. It isn't. No. no one had ever heard of it a year ago. You need to spend your money on the copy of Nadine Shah's album. Yes, exactly. It's amazing. It is a great, it is a great record. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. a really great record. So, yeah. well, you're putting out Nadine's album. Tell us a yeah. bit about your label. How long has it been a lot, uh, around? Did you have any kind of like guiding philosophy when you set it up? What, what, what's it for? You know. it, well, you know, what it's for, really, very simply, is that I was working at Rough Trade Records for many years, for about 15 years, with Jeff Travis and Jeanette Lee, and we'd, we'd, we'd had the Strokes and Libertines, and we're riding the crest of a wave, really. And it was, the, you know, it was that time in the, in the early 2000s when indie rock, for want of a better phrase, was really, you know, the, you had the White Stripes out there. The, the Libertines and Strokes were two ones as well. The New Rock Revolution. Lot, you know, whatever, whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure, I'm off now, see you yeah. later. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, it was a really, really great time. And then I just got, I literally just got a phone call out of the blue from the guy who was head of Columbia Records at the time, head of Sony, rather, at the time, and said, um, do, you, do you want your own label? And I was like, I was 40 years old, you know. I was like, well, I'm not going to play for England. I'm not a, you know, that's a, a football reference, by the way, John. All right, yeah. Um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm not a superhero. You know, what, what else does a, a, a boy dream of doing? Having his own record label. And I just thought, well, what, why, what else am I going to You know, yes. I, I felt, I loved my time at Rough Trade. And I will, you know, and I learned a lot from Jeff and Jeanette. And they're two amazing people. are still very close to me. But to the idea of just going out on your own is quite, empowering plus I was given a shitload of money from Sony as well which was great so I just had the time you know what it was what was the philosophy behind it was just like it's that thing was just I have the the little tagline that I made up at the time was unlock your mind because I just wanted it to be anything was possible anything I didn't want it to be genre specific like like some of the great labels like Motown, for example Motown was a very you knew what you were getting with a Motown yeah. record you knew what you're getting almost with a early creation record or you know lots of labels we can think we we, we mentioned earache records later yeah, on yeah, yeah. you knew with this I, I want what i wanted in my sort of in my crazy vision was to have a label where you see the the logo of the label and you would have no idea what it was going to sound like but you knew it'd be interesting and and that was it really it's really quite simple i just wanted to basically my record collection or what was in my head to be able to put it out and, and, I, and I tried really hard I tried really hard and I put out a lot of records I think I put too many records out initially and my deal with Sony sort of all fell apart what happened I got to this point where there's a thing called Disaster Clause right. which is so major label isn't it Disaster Clause it's like some weird movie from the 70s Disaster Clause basically I'd, I'd, I'd spent too much money and not sold enough records even though I'd had albums at number one and stuff you know, I'd do quite well but and then I sold the, the label went to bed for a few years and I sort of um, re sort of thought about it all. and I restarted again about three years ago and um, doing it on a lot smaller level the, the budgets are a lot less but I'm, I guess I'm enjoying it a lot more because you, you don't have the mad pressures of getting in the charts that you had when I was funded by a major which is great you know people moan about major labels with some great people there there's some idiots but there's, there's idiots who work at independent record labels as well and it's just an idea it's just and also I guess is it Maybe it's a vanity thing where people ask you, so James, what do you do? I run a record label. It's like, whoa, wow. I guess that's it, really. It's quite simple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's all about me, John. Yeah. <laughs> really. That's, that's pretty Come much... On, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you ask anybody, it's, it's all about the people that run it. I mean, who cares about the music? <laughs> <You> ask- <laughs> 
No, when I set <laughs> when I set up my record label, exactly. it was purely for the most noble of reasons. Yes, of course, it was my record label. Uh, when I chose what I wanted to go on my label. What uh, other than Nadine? What have you else have you got coming up? I've uh, got a great new. The, the great band from Norwich actually called Sink Your Teeth. These two girls from Norwich sink your teeth and they're very sort of ESG in that sort of world these two girls a bit post-punky we had a single out a couple of months ago uh, called Can You See Me there's a new single just going to radio now so you can hear it I think on various sort of six music shows and hopefully it'll spread a single called Glass that's a really great thing um, Raf, Raf Rundle who was one of the two bears um, he's got an album coming out called Stop Lying which heads the nice. t-shirt so a bit of self-promotion who's that aimed at Stop Lying is it it's named, I think it's aimed, aimed at everybody an omnidirectional yeah, it's command just like, it's just like can we just you know it's, I think he was saying I was talking to Raf the other day he said whenever you're watching the telly the news or you listen to the news on the radio just go oh, stop lying and people all the time people just oh stop lying you know, we're just exaggerating or lying away. just stop it do you know what though there are certain situations like say in the barbers for example where you want a bit of I wouldn't lying know. I wouldn't know I've never been to a barber well, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you okay so uh, last time uh, before I've got, it wouldn't be a quite a sour show if I didn't mention my barber Barry the barber hi Barry how's it going and he's a great guy and uh, when I first decided about half a year ago that peak beard madness had passed and it was time after a four-year absence for me to start growing a beard again because all the whoppers had had a shave and I walked in with my new short beard and Barry's first response was oh you've grown a beard good it covers most of your face (laughs) (laughs) that's the sort of barber you want isn't it shout out to Barry nice one Barry Um, all right so excellent so uh, when's Nadine's album coming out Uh, what's it called August the 25th which is in about a week and a half's time from now and uh, it's called Holiday Destination and there's going to be both a feature with Nadine coming up and she's also doing one of these Quiet Hour specials oh excellent yeah yeah, so you'll be hearing a lot more from Nadine on the Quiet Hour soon um, she's got a great tasting music music as well Nadine so you'll, you'll, you'll hear some good tunes hopefully nice one Okay, so coming up next, we have Don Cherry and Brown Rice. Don Cherry, the inimitable Don Cherry. Maybe. Yeah, I used to listen to a lot of Don Cherry when I was when I was at college in the sort of early eighties. My my friend James, who we uh, I, I met, I met two people in my first week at college who I know still. One of them ended up being my wife, 
and I'm still with to this day, 35 years later. And the other one was my friend James, who still continues to be my best friend um, after my wife. And he now lives in DC, but he was from Bristol and was very much a part of that sort of Mark Stewart, sort of tack eddy on you soundy world. And that and the, there was, was a lot of jazz going on in Bristol at the time. And I was very, didn't know about jazz. I was listening to soft sell in Japan, you know, but he introduced me to all these great, all this great music. And, um, Don Cherry was one that um, just really just sort of homed in on because it was just and that record we used to sit around and listen to that record a lot in like eighty one eighty two and just marvel at just how spacey it is but also how groovy it is I mean you were saying how groovy it is when it was on and I don't know just a really and I just think that that was my introduction to jazz you know and I've I've gone through so many different moods in jazz and. And I love listening to jazz. I probably listen to jazz more than I listen to anything else, but I probably understand it less than any other form of music. Yeah, yeah, same. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't understand jazz at all. I don't know. I don't because I'm, I'm. It's just not in me. I think jazz needs to be in you. If you ever find me writing about jazz, that definitely means someone's blackmailing me. <laughs> yeah. It definitely does because I, I hate writing about it. I just, you know? I, I don't. I love listening to it, and I can listen to the same. Was it? Yesterday, I was flicking through my records, and there's a John Coltrane album called Ole, yeah, and, which is such a great record. Ole, and the, yeah. And the, the, that first, the first side of the album is like an 18 minute song called Ole, and I put that on yesterday. And I listened to it four times on the trot, John, four times on the trot, and it was just every time was just doing my nutting because I, I don't understand. I was loving it and getting into it, but I didn't know. I could listen to a rock record or a disco record or a synth pop record or even a, a grindcore record. I can sort of, I can put my educational hat on. I can work it out. Do you know what I mean? Even even reggae to an extent, I could probably. I've got a little bit more of an. But jazz is just like it's just. Like, I don't get it, and I've and I've often bought books about jazz, and they start talking about notes and drop fifths and I, and it's, I don't I don't know what reading you mean. books on jazz it's that thing where you look at the page and it's like like an old uh, kind of Mickey Mouse cartoon where like all the uh, the the letters turn to sand and just pour off the page <laughs> like, you know. and you try really hard to understand it but you just don't but there's something really I often I often say to my wife and and I'll say it to you as well John what I would like one day is somebody to say to me you're not buying you're not buying any more jazz records ever, ever. That is it. From this moment onwards, you can't. And I go, you know what? Thank God. Because now I can try and learn about yeah, that. Yeah, I can yeah. try and understand the ones I've flipping got. Because I, li- I just go keep buying more. And it's just like, just stop buying them and just listen to the ones you've got and try and understand yeah. them. And I think, in fact, I'd like that with my whole record collection. I'd, I'd, I've often thought, if somebody said to me, never again from this, I'm 52 years old. All right, let's not say, let's say for 25 years from now onwards, till I'm 77, you're not buying another book, you're not buying another record, and you're not, you're nothing, you're not doing that, you're not buying any of those. Just, you've got the next 25 years to read all those books in your house that you've never flipping read, and listen to all those records over and over again, and try and get to understand those records. 25 years would be a good amount of time. I I think think that's quite, that'd be a good discipline, wouldn't it? And then when I get to 77, I'll go, right, what shall I get? And of course, there'll be no recorded music around then. And there'll be no books and it'll all be over. We can start again from scratch. I'll 25 years from now. Yeah, maybe, yeah. It's going to be me and you in some Zimmer frames. <laughs> but, so, like, well, like, Ole, it's really weird that you should pick that, uh, pick Ole up. Ole, I, I mean, I'm not going to get into, like, what's my favourite jazz record or what, but I, I currently listen to 
Ole more mm. than any other jazz record, and it's not. It's never <coughs> been that far from the stereo for the last yeah. few years. It's brilliant, isn't Derek, it? Derek, the editor of The Wire, I remember him telling me about it years ago and buying it just on the strength of his recommendation and thinking, like, you know, I, I own some of his later records, John Coltrane's uh, mm. later records, you know, but... and more of a kind of an abstract showing off part of my brain yeah, yeah, likes yeah. the fact that I own those records yeah, but yeah. Olay really hits the mark for it's, me it's, it's so palatable as well that's what's I think the beauty of it is that you can listen to it you know what I think what I love about some jazz records you can listen to them they can be there in the background while you're, while you're having your tea with the kids or you can just turn it up to number 11 and just freak out at it and it can work on all those levels I think Olay's one of the ones that does that and the other one for me the one that really the one that I will always recommend to people who don't really get it, jazz, or don't like it, is an album by Sonny Rollins called Saxophone Colossus, which I think is one of the greatest records ever made. All right, I need to get to a record shop on the way home then. In that well, case. Yeah, good luck, mate. There used to be a really good one just down the road, didn't there? A great jazz shop just down the road from here many years ago. Undoubtedly. But anyway, but, but now it's probably a Starbucks or something. Uh, on that really Sad note. pleasant, optimistic Sorry. note. <laughs> Sorry to bring you down, listeners. Uh, okay, well, this is The Mode. Not Depeche, no. just The Mode. The Mode. Eastern music. Made me have a bit of an acid flashback. Then. <laughs> what was going on there? I think that's the point of it. Isn't Explain it? that to me, Mike. You know what that is? It's like it's the it's that great time in in English music, pretty much English music. I think mainly when it went from wearing your suits one year to like smoking funny cigarettes yeah. and wearing your funny suit, funny shirts the next year. And it's like it was that bit where it was still quite poppy, and it, and it was really sort of like that really nice but also getting a bit psychedelic but without knowing it was psychedelia and I really loved that point in I remember um, I remember Jeff Travis at Rough Trade saying to me many years ago it was and I was when I was working there and um, we were talking about something about music and he went 1965 he went it's the year it all started well, what do you mean? He goes, well, in 1964, if you'd have gone in a recording studio, recording studio in 1964, it would have been men in suits and yeah. shirt and ties. If you'd have gone in 1966, they'd have been r- rolling jazz cigarettes, they'd be wearing all the flower, they'd have scars and long hair. He goes, 1965 is when it 
those two worlds merged and one was ending and one was beginning. And I think that point in music, it's a very innocent time. It's, it's, you'd say the acid flashback, they probably haven't even had acid, you know, they just heard about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? But they were, it was their interpretation of what it would be. And I love the fact that it's called Eastern music and there's this mock sort of like yeah. Eastern, it's like, it's Take ridiculous. Shake. And you know the, the furthest East they've ever been is probably, you know, I don't know, Oh, Essex. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no further. But it's brilliant. It's great. It's in, it is, and that, that whole, it was from a series called Rubble. There was this. Post Pebbles. Sort of yeah, thing, it was yeah. Post Pebbles and Nuggets and all that. There's one called Rubble, which um, Richard Norris, you know, Richard Norris was yeah, in the know grid. Richard, yeah, yeah. Richard Norris was one of the people behind that label when I was a young, sort of 17, 18 year old kid. So whatever Richard Norris ever does, I always thank him for the, the, the Rubble series. Amazing. So, well, this brings me on to a really interesting point, which is like, not what's the most psychedelic record you own? And I don't mean psychedelic yeah. as in a genre of music. I know, I know what you mean. I know. Yeah, what is the most psychedelic record? It'll probably be some crazy jazz record, to be honest. Probably, it will probably be, will be. A, yeah. It'll probably be a jazz record. Um, I often get. In fact, when I was at Glastonbury this year, talking about we were talking about festivals earlier on, and funny enough, the guy earlier on who was um, mailing in on Facebook, uh, Richard. Me and him went to go and see Thurston Moore played at Glastonbury this year with his with his new band doing his new record, the Rock and Roll Consciousness record, which I think is a great record, yeah, by the way. I mean, I really well, yeah. think it's an incredible record. And we went to go and see him, and that to me was the by far the most cyclic thing I saw all weekend. And it was a very straight rock. It was two guitars, bass, drums. But it was just like, it was just the layers and the... And the, these songs were going on for like 10, 15 minutes. It was, it was getting into almost sort of prog territory. It was almost yeah. getting into a bit sort of Grateful Dead's bit of a loving territory, but it was holding it back. And this kid, James, was playing guitar. Was just, James Sedwards, yeah, right? I mean, yeah, just, yeah. He's amazing. I mean, I, I mean I'd, unbelievable, John. I mean, he just took it to another level. Do you know what I mean? And the way his guitar, that, that great sound that Thurston has that we've heard a million times for the last 30 odd years. And I'm a big fan of Thurston and Sonic Youth changed my life and I love them. And I love that sound he makes. But having James playing on top of that, just taking it off and you got that great, uh, what's the name on Debbie, bass? Uh, Debbie Gooch. Debbie on bass. I mean, just... It was just, that to me was the most psychedelic thing I've seen in quite a long time, actually. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the word psychedelic is just gets lost in flower power, and it's 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 more than that, isn't it? It's a state of mind, John. Yeah. I think you and I both know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for better no, for and for worse. <laughs> it's just it's it's right up there with smoked cheese, isn't it? Really. Oh, here we go. So <laughs> it, it, it did. It did take about an hour to yeah. go to the smoked cheese. Everything, all roads lead to smoked cheese. <laughs> Okay, now that you've brought, now that the elephant in the room has been mentioned, how's your cheese game at the moment? My cheese is going well. I had a, I had a, we had a twenty fifth wedding anniversary party at the weekend, me and my wife, and we had a bunch of friends coming. And when we got married twenty five years ago, um, we had a, a party back at Jill's mum's house, who unfortunately died a few years ago. Lovely woman, we went back to her house in um, in the Forest of Dean. And we'd, 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 we'd had the reception with your, your meal that you have, you know, your bit of this. Well, then we all went to a party at a house in the, in the garden. It was August the 1st, 1992. And a lot of friends were coming and we didn't know what to get for food. We just said, well, let's just get a load of bread and cheese. 
So we had all this lovely bread and like loads of different sorts of cheeses. So we had, when we had the party last weekend, we just said, let's just get loads of cheeses in. So we had all this array of cheeses. I mean, loads of different cheeses. It was really exciting. We had a, and my uh, daughter, Olive, uh, kept, uh, she kept mentioning you actually quite yeah. in the evening. It's a shame John's not here. He liked all this cheese. Yeah. He says, yeah, but he may have eaten too much and got a bit sweaty. Yeah. But we don't want that, do we? So for people who don't know... <laughs> <laughs> Even in my darkest days, I used to treat myself quite well during the Christmas period. And uh, I would always, when I was down south, I'd find myself working in a factory and not get enough time off to go back up north to visit friends and family. And I'd essentially be staying in a flat on my own down south and then just have Christmas Day off from the factory. And what I'd do is I'd essentially get five pounds worth of cheese, a couple of bottles of sherry, a bottle of vodka, and sit in my favourite chair, listening to Bowie, just steadily eating cheese as the day progressed. And then you'd hit this kind of point where the psychedelia would begin, somewhere mid-afternoon. And, like, you know, I'd just eat, essentially eat cheese until my head would go really cold and I'd start sweating. And uh, a doctor, a doctor explained it to me. He's like, yeah, what happens is when you when your stomach gets full of a certain amount of cheese, all the blood from the different bits of your body rushes to your stomach to deal with that cheese. That's why you feel lightheaded and start nearly hallucinating, you idiot. <laughs> there you go. As with everything else you hear on The Quiet Sour, don't try this at home. Yeah, please don't try that at home. <laughs> sort of KP yourself don't you well podcast yeah you do, you do Soho Radio don't you I do a show on Soho Radio once a fortnight tell us um, about that when, where and when can we hear that you can hear that um, every other Friday uh, not uh, I did one last Friday so every every two weeks um, from four till six in the afternoon um, on a Friday but they all, all the shows go on Mixcloud as well so if you just want to listen to some of the shows and they're you know they're pretty much I, I play all sorts of in fact the other day I had on um there's a great label called Earth Records. Yeah, is that a sub-label of Fire? Yes, it is. Right, yeah, okay, it's like yeah. a folk. They do so like they're responsible for all the Bert, Bert, Bert Jansch yeah. reissues, all that stuff, and they just re-released a great Anne, Anne Briggs album, which Excellent. came out in the early 70s. Anyway, uh, a lovely uh, girl called Kyle runs that label, and she came on the show on Friday and just played a load of gr- amazing folk folk records. I mean, stuff I've not heard before. 
Um, so that was really good. So I just, what's great about it, I, you, you can just play what you want on Soho Radio. And I have some great guests. You, you, you must come on sometime, John. Definitely. It's really good fun. And it's a great time because it's a Friday afternoon. So friends are just like often pop in with a four-pack four of Strongbow. So it's fantastic. I'll get someone to pop in with uh, four wheels of Edam for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Plenty of cheese in Soho, you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I do that, and um, so I really, really enjoy doing that. I do it once a fortnight. It's just about enough time. I'm quite bad at preparing for it because I don't. I just usually grab a load of records and just make it all up as I go along. I'm always better when I've got a guest. But you know, it's great it's fun. You can listen back on Mixcloud. But I also do a podcast as well. I do a weekly football podcast um, for Crystal Palace Football Club with about three friends of mine, where we just moan about football for an hour and a half, and then yeah, so. I'm quite used to having a microphone in my face. Now, it would be remiss of me not to go on about this uh, before we uh, call it a day, but I was a teenage Loop fan. So it was really really nice to meet you after all these years and say, man, I love that first Loop album. I love all the Loop albums. I was was only on the first one. I was on the first one, Heaven's End, yeah. So, like, how young were you when that happened? 21. I moved to London in June 1986 when I was 21 and by the end of the year I was in loop and I pretty much spent 1987 and most of 1988 about half of 1988 uh, in loop yeah and travelling around the country playing gigs um, having some great great times met a load of fantastic people a lot of people I met around that time I'm still really good friends a lot of bands it was a real scene at that time. It was a lot of it was centered around this um, this pub in Camden called the Black Horse, um, which was and Jeff Barrett, who runs Heavenly Records, had a label called Head Records, which Looper on, and we used to have all these bands playing there. So you'd see like one week you'd have the House of Love, then you'd have I don't know, you'd have like the Happy Mondays played down there. You'd have My Bloody Valentine, The Go-Betweens, you'd have Us, The Mary Chain would always be around, Primal Scream would always be around. We went on tour with Primal Scream in 88, 87. So all these bands, all, we all knew each other, we all hung out together, we all wore black leather, we all took crap speed, and we all just loved each other, you know. It was the scene, it was a scene that celebrated itself before the scene that celebrated itself. But we were just a little gang, you know, talking about tribes earlier on, and we really were a little tribe of people, and we all helped each other out, we all knew each other, and it was just an exciting time. And we were playing this music that we wanted to sound like the 34 Elevators mixed with the Iggy and the Stooges, that's what we wanted to sound like. But thinking that was really old music, and it, was, and it wasn't, this was 1987, and this music had been around less than, that music had been around less than 20 years. But we just thought it was old music. Everything was old. I guess it's when you're 21, everything's old. It was just a really exciting time, and I'm really proud of my time in that band. I'm really proud of, and I still get people asking me about it, and I still get people in odd pubs and odd bars somewhere going, "Excuse me, do you used to be in Loop?" It's because I was on. The, I was on. Also, you got to remember, everybody else in the band had long black hair, so yeah, I was yeah. I was instantly recognisable because I didn't have long black hair. I just had hair like this, only a bit a bit wilder, maybe. But because, you know, it was a pre-internet time when I first heard Loop when I was like 15 or 16 mm-hmm. or whatever, um, I didn't know who Can were. Right, okay. I didn't know who Iggy and the Stooges were. I knew who Iggy Pop was, but I, right. didn't, I hadn't really heard the Stooges. Right, right. And I certainly hadn't heard certain floor elevators, yeah. you know, so all of this stuff was completely new yeah. to me. You know? Well, I think that's what's great about bands. They can open up a whole new world. When I first fell in love with 
Bowie when I was 15. Bowie opened up a world to me. I mean, that's what people do say about... And that's why you're such artists. a successful mime artist now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can do an umbrella in a storm. I can on. do it all the time. Anyway, yeah. I'm always... Hello. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to stop doing mime on the it, radio. It, it, it reminds me of when I, when I first went to college and I was doing English and, English and drama because I didn't know what else to do. I was like 18. I remember the first drama lesson. Was this, is this weird? Is this college in Exmouth called Roll College? which is not, It was affiliated to Exeter University. I've, I've mentioned it a few times earlier. So it was this Roll College. It was in Exmouth. And our drama teacher was a guy called Phil Tushingham who was Rita Tushingham's brother. Right, okay. I think it was a brother. Anyway, he um, he only had um, he only had one arm. Well, his one of his arms just went to just below just below his elbow, and he had his other. But what he always wore long sleeves, sort of silk shirts. He was very theatrical, darling. And he used to just <laughs> he used to sp- his sleeve, the loose sleeve, he used to just spin it around all the time. It's hilarious. He was very very funny, very camp, very funny. Phil touching him. I remember our first lesson, and we all had to. This is so drama, so theatre. We all had to like lie on the floor, and he was just like, you had to empty everything out of your mind, every, empty everything. Then you had to, I want you now to just wake up, and you're crawling out to the sea onto the coast, and everything you're going to do is for the first time. And I just always remember that, just thinking how fucking ridiculous it was, but also brilliant at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess most mornings I try and recreate that, John. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I wonder where you were taking me. I know, and now I, I know. I don't know where I was taking yeah, it. I, yeah. had, I had to end it somehow. <laughs> I was just looking into your eyes, and that's all I could think of. Yeah, <laughs> Phil crawling along the beach with his one good hand. Anyway, oh, oh, and I think, uh, well, yeah, well, I think we should end it there. Okay, and uh, thanks very much for coming in today. Well, thank you for asking me. Thanks it's been for the excellent an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thanks for the excellent choices of music. Good, I Is hope there anything is. coming up that you're doing that other than your record label that you want to tell people about? <laughs> Not really, no. Right, right <laughs> brilliant. Well, if you are in Totnes, come and see me. I'm interviewing Michael Chapman, who's um, a great uh, singer-songwriter, been around for years. Uh, I'm interviewing him somewhere in Totnes next Friday. So if you're around next Friday in Totnes and you've got nothing to do, come and see me. Clayton Peacock, that's the name of that fantastic album, Clayton isn't it? Clayton Peacock, so yes. If you, yeah. yeah, if you're not sure, if you don't know about uh, Michael Chapman, get get this sent on Spotify. Well, really, get yourself onto a Yeah, and there's also kind the of, there's a couple of great records from the early 70s. There's one called Fully Qualified Survivor and one called Wrecked Again, which are both fantastic records. In fact, the Fully Qualified Survivor album has got uh, Mick Ronson playing guitar on it. Oh, wow. And it's, and it's produced by um, the guy that produced um, Hunky Dory. His name escapes now. Anyway, a lot of the sounds on Fully Qualified, Fully Qualified Survivor, if you listen to that record, you can hear Hunky Dory in it. And you realise where Bowie took a lot of his ideas for Hunky Dory from Fully Qualified Survivor. The songs on there, you'd think if it was... Bowie singing it and not Michael Chapman they could fit straight onto Hunky Dory it's really interesting well there not, you go not kooks I hope <laughs> no not 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 fill your heart either stupid song uh, <laughs> alright thanks very much you've been listening to The Quiet Sour this is John Doran and James Endicott thank See you, you cheers bye oh thank god that's over time to put the poof back in it's dusty slot 
you are enduring the Quietus Hour podcast. And if you're a real glutton for punishment, you can listen to the entire programme featuring all the music via our website at thequietus.com forward slash radio. If you'd like to support what we do, there is a support button on the front page of the website uh, where you can make donations and help us carry on our uh, fantastic work. Or you can just pay us to stop. (laughs) 